Good morning. How y'all doing? Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Judges chapter 7. I hope you're having a good day, and I hope uh, that you came expecting God to, to speak into your life. It's already been a great uh, time of worship through song. I just want to say this. Uh, every once in a while, I've done this every week, but just want to say if you're a first-time guest with us today, it's been awesome just to see a lot of new faces lately, and we just want to say a big welcome to you, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us at Schindler Drive, and uh, we hope that you uh, enjoy your time here uh, in worship today. Judges chapter 7 is where we are. We're in uh, this series called The Gospel Thread on Sunday mornings, all right? And so I just want to start by acknowledging something that we all like under, most of us like underdog stories, right? We love underdog stories. Uh, you know, I looked up a few, these are very familiar to all of us, 1980, the Miracle on Ice, the USA Olympic hockey team made up of mostly amateurs and college kids that took on and beat the what thought what was thought to be the unbeatable Russian hockey team. That's an underdog story. Who remembers in 1990 when Mike Tyson went up against a, a, a little-known boxer named Buster Douglas? You remember that? All right, he was 42-to-1 uh, favorite. He was a 42-to-1 favorite over Buster Douglas. Tenth round, gets knocked out, right? Underdog story, we love that. We still like talking about it. How about those, uh, those of you who are football fans? You may remember in 2003 when the Appalachian uh, Appalachian State Mountaineers, which is a Division One 2A college football team, a 2A college football team up to that point had never beaten a Division One uh, football team, and yet they beat Michigan, ranked number five in the nation. Some of you remember that. We love those kinds of stories, right? We love the kind of the bad news bears kind of stories. We love seeing the underdog football team win and the fans storm the field. We love that. There's just something in us. I think we as Americans really love that because our roots go back to an underdog story, right? Revolutionary War, Great Britain. Uh, it's in our blood. It's what we love. We love underdog stories. That's why we love stories like the one we're going to look at this morning. We look at this story and we're like, this is the kind of underdog story I like. And if you were raised in church, uh, you're familiar with the story that we're going to look at. If not, you'll be familiar with it by the time we're done this morning. But Gideon and his 300 who battle against a huge, what looks like an unbeatable army. And I'll just, spoiler alert, they win. All right, and so we look at this story. We look at this story, and we're like, we love this. We love underdog stories, and yet we forget that this is not an underdog story. All right, this is like a dead dog story. All right, so th- this is not like a, a a small, like not so powerful team against a really powerful. This is a powerless team against an incredibly powerful army. Right. This is like, okay, this is not the Mountaineers going against Michigan, right? This is like a Pop Warner team going against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Probably not a good example, all right? So (laughs) Jags are probably going to have trouble with that one. Uh, This is more like a a, a little t-ball team going up against the Atlanta Braves right now. That's a better idea. It's a done dog, dead dog story, all right? So uh, let's, with that in mind, let's... uh, Let's go ahead and you can stand. Uh, Judges chapter 7 is where we're going to be reading. We're going to read beginning in verse 1 through 8. And, and here's what we're doing. Just so, so you're opening God's Word, you're standing up. we walking through this series, and we, we really want to get a full scope and understanding of the flow of Scripture. So we want to grow in our biblical literacy as students of God's Word. And we also want to see how the, there, there's a gospel thread running through every page of Scripture. All right, so with those things in mind, let's read. Uh, about this battle, and we'll come back and see how we got to this place. Beginning to read in verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him arose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moriah, or Moray, in the valley. 
Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, uh, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, uh, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I shall say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall sit uh, by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down, uh, uh, down to drink, um, set him to himself as well. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300. But all the rest of the who knelt down to drink the water... Um, they were in their own group. In verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Gideon, With these 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And all the others go every man to his own home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below them uh, in the valley. All right, have a seat as I pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I just want to thank you for the the worship that we've already experienced through song. Lord, I thank you that we can come together uh, in the world, a broken world that we're walking through as broken sinners saved by grace, come together with our brothers and sisters in you and sing these songs to you, these truths that we uh, are resting in and hoping in. Uh, what, a, what an encouragement that is and a joy that is. And so we just thank you for already meeting with us today. Pray as we get into your word, Lord, that you would you would help us to learn, Lord. We, at the outset of this, recognize that we are very, very desperately needy people in need of you, in need of your power, in need of you moving in our life. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are a God who meets us in our weakness. And so, Lord, we recognize that we are looking at a story here that can change us, but it can only change us if you come in great power in our hearts, in our lives, and intervene. And use it to change us. So we ask that you would do just that. For your glory alone, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week, we hopefully you remember, we studied the life of Joseph. And uh, that was at the end, the last 14 chapters of Genesis. Moses is the author of Genesis. He uh, devotes those last 14 chapters to the story of Joseph. And you get to the close of Genesis, and things seem good. Like, you get to the end of Genesis, and you're like, this is great. You know, the, God's people are under the protection of this great leader who's risen to power. He's an Israelite in Egypt. Uh, but then you close out Genesis, and you open up Exodus, and it's a different story. 400 years have passed, and uh, the people there uh, who are God's people, they've grown in number, millions of people now. They're a nation, and, but they're no longer living the favored life that they enjoyed when Joseph was in power. Joseph has long been dead, and now they've been forced for years into slavery there in Egypt. It's a terrible situation. And Exodus, what Exodus is, as you read it, it's this epic adventure of God's people facing a ruthless, powerful, wicked enemy, Pharaoh, and how God raises up an unlikely leader to lead them out of that bondage, right? You already see a gospel thread right there. Right of, a, of a, a greater Moses, Jesus who would come and he'd die on the cross and raise from the dead, leading sinners out of slavery to sin. Starting in Exodus 16, all the way to the beginning of Joshua, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and um, Deuteronomy, it records the journey to the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. 
And just before they go into the promised land in Deuteronomy, Moses, who doesn't get to go into the promised land, you can read in Numbers 20 why that is the case. Joshua's going to do it. But Moses does. He, there's, Deuteronomy just a, it just records a few days in the life of Israel. And so in those days, uh, Moses is giving these speeches, and he's reminding them about their uh, identity as God's chosen people, as children of God. He's explaining that they're going to encounter Canaanites in the promised land. Uh, that are not godly people, that are living in ways counter to the ways of God. And he instructs them as they go into this time of conquest to drive all of the Canaanites out of the land. And when you get to the end of Joshua, most of them have been driven out, right? They've, uh, the conquest has happened, they're settling in, and it's just like things seem good, right? Just a few more spills to clean up. That's a problem. There shouldn't be any spills at all. Moses said to drive out all of the Canaanites in the land. And those spills that are there, that lingering Canaanite presence that shouldn't have been there, that ends up being, uh, you know, in, in, turning into um, a big mess, a big mess. They start intermarrying with pagan people there. They begin to worship false gods. It results in to sin running rampant in the land. God's judgment falls on them in the form of them being handed over to their oppressors, their enemies. It's a terrible situation. And you see this cycle happening over and over and over again in Judges. In fact, take a look at the graphic, and I'll show you how this works. You see this over and over and over again in Judges. You see at the top, you see the people falling into sin. Uh, you see the people being handed over to their oppressors, to enemies. You see Israel repenting, crying out for God to save them. God raises up a deliverer using the form of a judge, which is not like judge, gavel, don't think of robe. Think of a judge like a military leader who leads them uh, to have victory over their enemy. They experience a time of peace and rest, and then they go right back into sin. So it's this cycle that happens over and over and over in this book. You can take that graphic down, and it's a very, very dark uh, book. It's a very troubling book to just see where sin... I mean, we're, we're as far away from Eden as you can get by the time you get to the end of Judges. And yet, through as you walk through this dark book, there's these glimmers of hope of a God who promised to save His people and who's continuously going to be faithful to deliver and save His people. And that truth shines most clearly in this book through these judges that raise up. There's 12 total judges. Six of them, their uh, stories are told here in Judges, and we're just going to look at one of these judges, and you already know it's Gideon, probably the most celebrated of the judges. So how do we get to this place in Judges that we just read? So uh, they've uh, thrown into this sin cycle again. They've sinned. They've been uh, judged by God. They're, now they're under the, uh, the oppression of the Midianites who didn't enslave uh, Israel like some of the other enemies did. What they did is they wait for Israel. They f waited for their land to flourish and for them to have a lot of livestock, and then they would come in and they would basically just pillage everything and steal everything from the Israelites. And so uh, basically what you have is you have God's people, God's covenant people, scared for their lives, hiding in caves, surrounded by this Midianite army who's stealing everything from them. What's God going to do? God's going to raise up a deliverer. And the question is, is who is God going to raise up? You'd think, man, I have some ideas. I mean, it seems to make sense that God would go find like a strong, like a strong warrior, like go find some CrossFit, junkie, karate chopping, you know, Rambo looking, Chuck Norris, some strong, mighty deliverer. And yet onto the stage of scripture walks this guy named Gideon. Very weak. In fact, in as of most people, he was, he's the kind of guy that not, he wouldn't be called a winner, he'd be called a loser. And that brings up our first point this morning is we look into this passage and in this, this story, and here's what we first see, God's extreme ways to expose weakness. 
God's extreme ways to expose weakness. Out of all the people that God could have picked to deliver his people, he chooses, keyword chooses, to go to the weakest clan of the region and to pick out the weakest guy that he can find. You say, well, how do you know that Gideon's weak? Well, listen to how we were first introduced to Gideon in chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of Orphrah, practiced all week to make sure I didn't say Oprah there, Orphrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. All right? So if you know anything about, you know, uh, wine presses, or you, if you know anything about wine presses, you know anything about threshing wheat, you know that in a wine press is not a place where you're going to thresh wheat. All right? Uh, you're going to thresh wheat out on a hillside where the wind is blowing so that chaff can be blown away, right? And yet here you find Gideon down into this hole. Why is he down in this hole? Because he's scared. The angel comes and finds the one who's going to deliver Israel down in a hole hiding from an enemy. He's presented to us as a man who is nervous, who is anxious, and who lacks courage. And the angel of the Lord says, this is who I am going to use to deliver Israel. In fact, if you see the way he greets um, you know, Gideon, if you go back and read that, he calls him the man of valor. It makes you wonder if like angels have you know, the ability to be sarcastic, right? He comes and says, man of valor. He meets him in a wine press. All right. Well, look at what God chooses to do next. All right. So he, he already is a weak guy, and he puts together an army that is already kind of weak, right? And he, God comes along and purposely, deliberately makes this already weak army weaker. All right. He shaves down the numbers. All right. Why does he do that? Why does he shave down the numbers so dramatically? He tells us in chapter 7, verse 2. He says uh, to Gideon, he says, The people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites in their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My hand has saved me. God's like, I'm not going to let you go out with, I know it's 32,000 against, we'll find in the next chapter, it's 120,000 Midianite soldiers. I'm not going to let you go out with this little army of 32,000. It's not small enough because I know you. This is an underdog story here, which means there's a chance. I know you guys think you can win this in your own strength. And I know that even with 32,000 troops lined up, you have hearts that are going to try to boast in your own strength when you win this victory. The question is not, are you going to win? You're going to win this victory. I'm just not going to let you do it with 32,000 uh, people because you're going to end up boasting in your own strength instead of giving glory to God like you should. And, we, and, and here at the outset of this, we have to be really careful because we look back into the Old Testament and we shake our heads like, how can you be in an army of 30,000 people and be, on, on God's side and beat an army of 120,000 people and boast, right? And yet you have to be very careful because as we look into the lives of these Israelites, this is a mirror into our own lives. We're the same way. Are we, do we not have a propensity if you're, being will, if you're willing to be honest, that when something good happens in our life, when there's a victory that's experienced in our, our life, to pat ourselves on the back and to think about how great we are? Is that not what Paul says in Romans 1, 21, that, as that it's at the heart of the nature of sin that's within us, that even though we know, he says this, even though we know God, we are prone to not honor God and give him the glory he deserves and to thank him for what he has done? What all of this is, is communicating to us is that we're thieves. Thieves, thieves of what? Thieves of God's glory. We're glory hounds. We're glory hogs. God says, I'm going to win the victory, but I'm going to remove any shadow of a doubt of whose glory this belongs to when all this is done. And he goes to extreme measures to, to make them understand they're weak because of our extreme propensity to boast in our own strength. These 
32,000 troops facing this army of 120,000. It's, it's an underdog story, but that's about to change. God says this army is too big. So I want you to do a test here. We've got to shave this down. He says, Gideon, I want you to, to ask the people. I want you to say, hey, who of you guys is scared? And, and if anybody raises their hand, they're going to go home. And I imagine knowing Gideon, he probably had his hand up at first. You know, he's like, no, Gideon, you have to lead, all right? Ask the soldiers that. And so he asked the soldiers, and everybody starts looking around, and there's a lot of them who are scared. There's a lot of them who, from a human standpoint, there's just no, this doesn't even make sense. 32,000, 120,000. This means each of us have to, like, take down four guys without being killed ourselves, and each of us have to do that perfectly for us to have any chance. So they begin to raise their hands. It says 22,000 of those men file out, left with 10,000, and God yet comes again. He says, okay, Gideon, this is your troop. still too big. Still too big. So he gives them a second uh, test. He tells Gideon to take them down to the water. We read that there, and we won't spend a whole lot of time on this, but he says, hey, there's going to be a group of guys who, who just face down in the water, begin to drink, and there's going to be some guys, and what it meant by laughing like a dog, who are going to kneel down with their eyes up, and they're going to scoop the water and, and drink the water out of their hand. And he said, I want you to put those guys into one group. And what that shows, uh, when they scoop it up, it shows kind of a vigilance about those guys, that, uh, a vigilance about those guys, that they uh, are focused, that they are, that kind of have a warrior mindset, that they're, that they're, they're guys that, that you would want on your team. So there definitely is a strategy here, right? He's diminishing the numbers, but uh, there is a lesson here about organizing and strategizing, all right? So once all this is said and done, the guys in this group over here who scoop the water up are 300, and everybody else goes home. Everybody else goes home. So if you're in that group of 9,700 guys who goes home, that's an awkward conversation to have with your wife when you go home, you know? It's like, why are you home, right? Well, he sent a bunch of people home, right? I'm, now, I wasn't in the group. I'm telling you, I didn't raise my hand. I wasn't scared. Evidently, I can't drink water right. Here I am, all right? Only 300 guys out there. That's who he's got to work with. What's happening here is, is you've gone from 32,000 to 300, and it's gone from an underdog story to a dead dog story. There's no hope of them winning this. And this whole drama is happening so that we'll get this one point that God's greatness is always exhibited through our helplessness and through our weakness. And God stresses this. Why does he stress this right here? Why is this on repeat? Do you notice that this is all over this passage? It's not just underscored. It's circled and highlighted and pointed out over and over and over again. It's because we need the reminders because we're so thick-headed about this. We struggle owning, one, how desperately weak we are and we naturally have a propensity to think way more highly of ourselves than we really are. We like to think that, you know, you know we, we look at a story like this and we're like, man, you know, I know I'm kind of weak, but I'm not this weak. You're saying that I'm, I'm this weak? Yeah, that's what this is saying. We don't like that. We like the idea that at least I got some power, some wisdom, some ability, some kind of gift to bring to the table to win the victory. And it's difficult for us to get with Paul. Gets. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he's recounting God saying to him, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that is antithetical to the way we think as Americans, is it not? We like to admire our strength. We like to boast in our victories. We like to be proud of our possessions and our promotions and our money and our credentials. That's why when somebody gets a promotion, often their first thought, and there's a danger even in the life of a believer to think, of course I'm getting a promotion. I, mean, I'm, I deserve it. I'm sharp. I've worked hard, right? Look at my credentials. Look how qualified I am. Why do we do that? Because we're, we're glory thieves by nature. And we still struggle with this 
big time even after we come to the Lord. We see that here as these people are God's people. They've seen what God has done and they, yet they still struggle with it. We tend in moments of victory to, to first sing, you know, what an awesome me more than what an awesome God. Glory to me instead of glory to God. Just lean in, and really this comes out in, in, our, in our culture, right? If you just look into our world, you know, it's all over the place. If you look at movies, if you look at TV shows, is that not the message? Is, is that not the mentality of most people, right? What an awesome me, not what an awesome God. Uh, you know, you think about, listen to lyrics. So my sons play baseball. There's like this trend where even like t-ballers and like uh, my, my uh, six-year-olds in an eight and under division, they have these walk-up songs. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, a, you know, it's like an entrance music up to the plate. And so the kids can pick their entrance music, right? And there's some interesting choices out there that kids are picking, all right? I'm like, we probably need to filter these, right? Um, but there's some really interesting, um, you know, song choices for our team. They're going to they're gonna be able to do it. And they asked all of our little guys that Ma- Max is on that team. He's six. They said, what songs do you want? So Max picked his song. And out of all the songs he could have picked, he picked the Star Wars theme song. That's what he's walking up to the plate to hit to, all right? If you'd have told me like 10 years ago, I would have a son with a mullet walking up to the plate to hit with a star to a Star Wars Imperial March, I'd have said, you're crazy, all right? But we were at a park the other night, and, and there was a, it was on another field, another team, and I was listening to their songs, and one of the kids, eight and under division, all right? He's walking up to the plate in the little 15-second second, second clip of his song was that song from a few years ago, You Can Go and Tell Everybody, I'm the Man, I'm the Man, I'm the Man. I don't know if you've heard that, but it just says that over and over again. You can go and tell everybody, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. And there he's walk, strutting up to the plate like, I'm the man. I'm like, better not strike out. You know, that's, I don't know how you're going to walk back to the dugout. You know, it's hard to be the man striking out. And we look at that, and, and, I, and I thought about that as I was studying this week. I said, you know, it's, it's cute maybe to look at, but is that, not, is that not a theme in a lot of people's heart after they experience a victory? We walk away from that victory thinking, I'm the man. Thinking, of course, of course I experienced that victory. Of course I deserve that. I got the job. I made the team. I earned the promotion. I handled my retirement wisely. I got the girl. I'm healthy. My kids are turning out well because of what I've done. And we fail to remember and acknowledge, it, acknowledge like we should that there's a God in heaven who stands behind every single victory, every single mountaintop experience in our life. At the most basic level, have you thought about just how the, the blessings that are yours all because of who God is and what he's done in your life, the grace at work in your life? Have you thought about the blessing it is for you to be an American, to live in this nation? Just at the most basic level, have you thought about who's giving you the breath that you have right now in your lungs to live, to wake up this morning? I mean, you know, I know that there's things in our country that need to be fixed. It's an understatement. I know there's things that discourage folks, and we get to complaining about those things, and sometimes those complaints are justifiable. I understand that. But who's behind you being born into this country, right? Who's to say you weren't to be born as an orphaned street child in the slums of India, as I saw when I went over to India for a mission trip? Who was behind that? God. Who gave you the athletic ability you have? God. Who gave you the sharp mind that you have? God. Who gave you that opportunity to promote at your job? God did. Who helped you land that new account this month? God did. Who's behind your kids turning out? God. And yet in those moments, we want to lift up 
the, the song of you can go and tell everybody I'm the man, I'm the man. Instead of remembering who is behind it, whose glory belongs to, and understanding that the victory is his. God's the one who moved. God's the one who gave you that job. God's the one who gave you that promotion. Hey, God's the one who's behind you living in this season right now. Maybe you went through some difficulty, but he's the one who's behind this season of rest and peace in your life. God's behind every victory. Is that the way you're seeing those victories in your life? You know, what's interesting to think about is sometimes when we get stubborn and we don't learn that lesson in a way that's, you know, in a, in a surrendered way, often because of our stubbornness to learn that lesson, God will come along and he'll strip some things away from our life so we will. That's what's happening in this passage right here. Have you considered, some of you are going through some difficulties right now. Some of you are going through some pain right now. Have you considered that you getting that bad report about your health, that you dealing with that illness, that you getting blindsided by the unfaithfulness of a spouse, that you losing that job, whatever it is, have you thought about that it could be a God, somehow the mystery of his sovereignty and the purposes of, 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 his, of him for, uh, his purposes for your life, that he could be shaving some things away from your life that you tend to, to look to for security, that you tend to look to for purpose, that you tend to look to for strength and somehow he stripped those things away again in the mysteriousness of his sovereign plan for your life in a way that you will be more in tune with how weak you are and how much you need to depend on him. Let me ask you this. Who of you, and just listen to the whole thing here, you, you come out of it, but you look back to a season. It was one of the most difficult seasons you ever went through as a believer. Or maybe you weren't a believer and God used it to bring you to Him, but you look back to one of the most difficult seasons you, you ever walked through, a season of heartbreak where you felt helpless, where you felt the rug ripped out from underneath you in life, where you felt God reducing your army, and it was painful, and it was confusing, and it was difficult, and yet you look back now, and you see that as a time in your life like you, that you leaned on God like you never had before. You depended on Him like you never had before. He worked in your life like he never had before. How many of you, just, just say, if, if that is you, if you look back and that's the case at some point in your life that God used a season of, life, uh, of that to, to make you depend on him, would you say amen? All right, some of you needed to hear amens right there. Some of you needed to hear that kind of testimony. Because I'm telling you, God may be reducing the size of the army in your life for the purpose of drawing you close to Him so that you'll be more in tune with how weak you are so that you can experience more of His power in your life. God will make us weak to help us experience that in our weakness, that's where His greatness and His power can be most put on display. And that path can be tough, and that brings us to our second point. Our second point. We'll look at verse 9 here in just a second. If you're looking at the clock, first point was really long, and these last two aren't going to be as long. Second point, God's consistent willingness to calm worries. In other words, we, we see Gideon right here, getting in tune with his weakness. He already knows he's weak. We're also seeing him continue to deal with doubts and anxieties and worries. And we see God understanding our frame, understanding our weakness, and coming alongside of us here. Look at verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with pure your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go against the camp. 
Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, and at number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. All right, so let's stop there for a second. So Gideon is asked the question by God. God knows he's fearful. God knows he's a little confused. And he says, listen, Gideon, if you're afraid, it implies a question. Are you afraid? Is Gideon afraid? Of course he is. Of course he's going to say, yeah, I'll take, I'll take you up on that deal. Take me down to the camp. Help me. I'm scared. All right, he goes down with his servants. And at first you may be thinking, well, this isn't very encouraging. He sees the vastness of this army. It, it, and it mentions camels. It says there's soldiers in camels. As far as you can see, you numbered as much as the sand on a seashore. There's a lot of sand at the beach, right? So that's a scary situation that he's seeing there, right? Just the camel. Like you, you wake up this morning and there's thousands of camels in your neighborhood. I don't know what to do about that. That's a unique, scary problem that you got on your hands, right? And then not to mention the, the soldiers there, the warriors. But God has a plan to encourage him, all right? And if you know anything about the story of Gideon, this isn't the first time, all right? There's four times, this being the fourth, that he feels vulnerable, he feels weak, he feels doubtful, he feels filled with fear and anxiety, he's worried, and yet God comes along the way and he, he encourages him. So we often will focus on his lack of courage, we'll often focus on his lack of, you know, strength and, um, and just how, how weak he is, and there definitely is some lessons there, right? We, we don't want to just be gripped by, by worry and fear, and, you know, and, um, you know we, we certainly want to learn to mature and to grow out of that as long as our faith is in the right place and it's coming from the right place, but we often will focus so much on his weakness that we look over a gracious God that's coming alongside of him over and over and over again to encourage his heart. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. We have a God who remembers that we are dust and comes alongside of us. It says in chapter 6, verse 34, The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon from the beginning of this. The same way God's Spirit lives in us and walks with us and guides us and comforts us and comes alongside of us in our weakness. Well, how does he encourage him? Look at verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp, down the mountain, into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell down and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is who he interpreted his dream for him. He says, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given uh, into his hand the camp. And then verse 15, and as soon as Gideon had heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. How cool is that? So just think about that, the vastness of what he sees there, how intimidating that was. And then think about the vastness of all of those tents and those soldiers and all the conversations that are happening in the night. What are the odds that he sneaks up to the edge of this camp, hears two guys share something very specific that's going to give him the encouragement that he needs for this battle? You're like, well, the odds are astronomical. No, the odds are 100% in his favor. We need not forget that the sovereign God and the providential hand at work in Joseph's life that we looked at last week is the same God at work in his life. And God said, you need to be encouraged, Gideon. I do need to be encouraged. He's humble and he's honest about it. And God says, okay. And God planned the path that he took down that mountain into that valley. 
God planned the rock that he would stand behind. God planned the conversation that would take place between these two guys who have this crazy dream about this loaf of bread that comes tumbling down a hill and lands and it smashes a tent. What's up with that? Can we just talk about that for a minute? All right? Does that seem a little strange to anybody else? All right? I mean, if I'm Gideon, I'm like, really? Okay, so I get that. I, I guess well, basically the way he interpreted that, I'm the bread, the army's the bread. Can we think of something else to compare me to than a loaf of bread? Really? Something a little more intimidating? How about a big boulder, right? How about a chariot of fire? Bread, right? I don't know how intimidating that is. I don't know of any sports teams that are going to use that as their mascot, right? Nobody's going to be naming their, their, their team, I don't know, the breadsticks or something. I don't know. <laughs> Duval County Donuts. I don't know. The Fighting Danishes, right? A jumbo shrimp. That's not very intimidating. That's more intimidating than a piece of bread, right? It's a strange item to be represented by, and you're like, what's up with that? Well, there's actually a point in that. I mean, what's powerful about a loaf of bread sitting there? And yet he's reminded him, that's you, Gideon. You're simply a piece of bread. Another part of this dream, another part of this story that's reminding him of his weakness. And at the same time, in the middle of this simultaneously, it's encouraging him to know that God's going to take pieces of wheat bread like Gideon and this army and do something great, do something impossible. That's what Gideon needed to hear. He needed to know that a sovereign God went before him. He needed to know in this moment that God had already gone before him and the victory had already been won before it ever even started. How, how would it change your week this week? If you acknowledge maybe you need that encouragement in your life because you feel alone you feel on an island but if you're in christ the presence of god that's with gideon is with you his his word has been filled with promises right and what are those promises meant to do or or what are they what are we meant what are we supposed to do with those to stand on those and to walk into this week knowing that there is a god that goes before us and paves the way for our life and how does he respond he responds the right way worships god honors god gives god the glory strange place to have a worship service on the edge of this camp, behind this rock, in the dark, his little servant's there. He just begins to praise God. He goes back up the hill, and he's ready to go. Verse, or, uh, point three, God's unexpected approach to undo armies. I read verse 15 again. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Verse 16, And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and put trumpets in, into their hands and all of them in empty jars and with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with them came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, it's the middle of the night. When they, in the middle of the night, it's when they would have been changing guards. So it would have got them at a vulnerable spot. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And it says the army fled, and the battle's over. Now, this is the part of the story we love. 
right? This is the part that we jumped to. This is the part that was in the flannel graph, pre- flannel graph presentation when you were little. This is the part that VeggieTales focuses on. This is the part we love because this is the part where we're like, yes, underdog story right here. We need to make sure we remember this is not an underdog story. This is a dead dog story. This is still a terrible strategy, right? This is not the way you want to go into battle. Some of you are like, yeah, but look at like movies like 300. Isn't there a movie called 300, right? What about that movie, right? That was still a good strategy, right? They outsmarted a much bigger army with a good strategy. Underdog, yes. But trained Spartan warriors who hold a place where there's a narrow entrance that that bigger army could only sneak a few people in you know, at a time, and they picked them off little by little. This is not, this would be a totally, the Gideon's 300 story is a totally different story, all right? Hollywood makes this story, it looks completely different. They probably wouldn't make it a story because it seems like a ridiculous strategy. He spreads out this little army into three groups, doesn't concentrate them in one area. Military 101, don't spread out your forces. Puts another part of the bad strategy, left hand torch, right hand trumpet. What's the problem there? What's missing? I don't know, sword, a weapon, something. This is a major military engagement against a ruthless enemy. And the general says, let's send in the band. That's what's happening right here. Bands are great. I'm not knocking bands, right? You just don't send in the horn section in the second half of the championship football game to win the game. We need you to play the French horn, right? We need you to, I don't know if that's in a band. We need you to play a trumpet. We need you to inspire some people with your music, right? The hornblowers aren't supposed to be the ones fighting the battle, and yet he puts them in position to do just that. It looked confusing from a human perspective, but what have we seen as we've walked through the Old Testament that God's ways are higher than our ways? That He is a sovereign God who sees and is doing what we can't see. We have a big... Hey, we're going to continue to be on repeat about this. We're going to be a broken record about this here, that we serve a big God. Why? Because Scripture presents Him as a big God who's got everything under His control. And if you're in Christ, every part of your life is in His sovereign hands. Every piece of it He's working out for your good and for His glory above all. We see that work right here confusing in the moment, but we see a God who's situating those lights in a certain way on that hill. They couldn't see what he was doing, but down from that Midianite perspective, scholars believe that those lights in that dark, uh, in the darkness up on those mountains, it looked like a sea of soldiers, the way he spread them out. The sound of those clay pitchers crashing together sounded like a sea of soldiers with weapons. And the Midianites run confused. They run out of their tents with their swords. There were swords in the storage, but God was going to keep them in the hands of the enemy. And use a very unexpected toolbox of weapons to win this battle. He uses the, the enemy sword as they begin to kill each other. And they win the victory through the swords of those enemies. Humanly speaking, this is a terrible strategy. Divinely speaking, it's a perfect strategy. So what's happening here? He's telling them, he's doing something here. Shaving down those numbers. Using a weak leader. And then a very weak, confusing strategy. He says, I want you to stand back, I want you to blow your trumpets, and I want you to watch me to do the rest. I don't want you to lift a finger, I want you to blow the trumpets, I want you to yell, and I want you to watch me do the rest. Do you see it? It's a great story telling a greater story. Gideon turns, don't get me wrong, into a great leader this night, but he shows himself not to be the great leader that Israel will need. 
In fact, if you follow his story, he's going to let this victory go to his head. The very thing, God's, the lesson God's trying to teach them, he doesn't learn it. They win the victory. It goes to his head. He begins to get, you know, it, the power goes to his head. He, he, loses, he has a bad temper. He kills, like, some people from a couple villages because they didn't help him in this battle. He collects a bunch of gold as a leader in Israel, which is something that you weren't supposed to do. His story does not end well. The book of Judges does not end well. It ends in a very sad, dark way. It may be the most dark place in all of the Bible, the last few chapters of Judges as civil war ignites between the people of God and the promised land. It's a dark chapter, and yet through it, there's these glimpses of hope. And it ends with a very sad, hopeful verse. The very last verse in Judges says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what is that doing? It's paving the way for the book of Ruth to present the line of a greater king who will come. All right, let's say it this way, a great king who will come. Next week, we'll learn about the beginning of, of his calling, David, who will rise to power and will be the king that most clearly points to the king that is to come, who will build a king, kingdom and establish a kingdom that most clearly puts on display the kingdom that Jesus comes and establishes and builds. But there's still hope in Judges. When you look back through Judges, you still see shadows of the gospel. You still see the gospel thread running through even in the mess as you see Gideon saving a people from a powerful enemy army through a great victory using unexpected weapons. One day Jesus will come and he'll save all people and he'll defeat an enemy army of death and sin and hell through an unexpected weapon choice. What is that? He'll defeat death with death on the cross. Gideon will lead the army. What did he do? He led them to shout for the Lord in Gideon. Jesus on the cross lifts up another cry. Not, hey, try harder, do better, try to earn it. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. What does he yell? It is finished. In this story, the God of Israel says, you stand back and you let me fight for you. And at the cross, God says, you stand back, you don't lift a finger, and you let me defeat your great enemy, sin, death, and hell. And we stand back and we watch him win the victory, and then we get to rest in it. You know, uh, postseason baseball's on right now. I love postseason. I, in my opinion, and you know, we won't argue about it right now, I think it's, one of the, I think it's probably the best when it comes to postseason professional sports. I love it. But it dawned on me last night as I'm watching one of the games that there will be some people this postseason who will win by doing nothing, nothing at all. They're called bench warmers. Guys who weren't able to get any play time this season. Guys who ride the pine, right? But if their team wins, guess what they're going to get? They're going to get a ring. They're going to get the title of champion that they'll be able to wear the rest of their life. And I just want to say this. You want to live a life of experiencing the power of God? See his power. See the fact that you cannot win. You can't do it. You can't win the victory, but Jesus has. And if you come to him because he is one, you win. Not because you've earned it. Not because you deserved it, but because Jesus Christ won it and invites you to come and take part in it. We love Romans 8, don't we? We're studying that on Wednesday nights. And we love the, we love the verse, we are more than conquerors, and we stop there. We're more, we turn it into a theme song, like that queen, we are the champions. We are the conquerors, my friend. Yes, I love that verse. And yet we forget the rest of that verse. It doesn't stop there. 
We're more than conquerors. No, we are more than conquerors through Him. Through Christ. He's the champion. We get to be heirs with Him, in Him, through Him. He's the champion that allows us weak pieces of bread to have the blessing of His great victory. How? By resting in Him alone and realizing that I am this 300 army, powerless to save myself, but invited to rest in the victory that's already been won. The champion of all champions, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Do you know Him this morning? Would you pray?